So congratulations for uh, completing the first day. And can everyone hear me back there? Here? Good. Thank you. There's a beautiful um, words from the Buddha in the Samyutta Nikaya. <clears throat> and it says that within this fathom long body, and a fathom is a measurement that's used to measure the depth of water. So a fathom is around two meters or around six feet. But the Buddha says that within this fathom-long body, with its thoughts and emotions, lies our world. Its origin, its cessation, its pathway to freedom is found within this fathom-long body. I just love that quote. It's pointing to the body, that within this body, in our mind, in our heart, lies our world. It's beginning, it's ending, the pathway to peace, the pathway to freedom, the pathway to nirvana is within this fathom long body. <clears throat> and so I want to congratulate you all for the uh, first day of practice. I know it's um, a change of lifestyle, and uh, for some of us, it may be very challenging. I'll offer you some reassuring words from Bhante Gunaratana, <coughs> a Salonese monk. He says that somewhere in this process of meditation, you'll come face to face with the sudden realization that you are completely crazy. That your mind is a shrieking madhouse on wheels, barreling down the hill, utterly out of control and hopeless. Nope, it's not a problem. You're not any crazier than you were yesterday. Perhaps it's always been this way, but you just haven't noticed. So I find that to be very reassuring, kind of the description of my own mind at times. And we're involved here in a practice of, um, in a couple of ways of helping to bring more awareness to the breath, to the body, and that repeated repetition of bringing the mind back when we wander off. And so there's the process of awareness, the process of steadying, which takes its own time. <clears throat> it's very important in this practice to um, practice with a, a kindness in our hearts. And I know for many of us, due to our background conditioning, um, we may not be so kind to ourselves. Sometimes it's said that we can sometimes can be uh, kind of, uh, more kind to others than to ourselves because if we said to others what we said to ourselves then we would maybe have no friends. So the training ourselves with kindness goes a long ways. And <clears throat> it's interesting, in Mandarin, the word for mindfulness is actually one character, not two. And the character is divided in half. It <clears throat> speaks of mindfulness and heart. They're actually both together in the character of the definition of mindfulness in Mandarin. 
And um, so it's implying this unification of the mind and the heart. So maybe, uh, as one colleague calls it, mindfulness, heartfulness, or kindfulness. So built right into the practice is the, the sense of the heart. And actually, uh, in Pali, one of the words for mind is manogan, mano, and, and that's re- re- referring to uh, in the heart. The mind resides in the heart. So it's very important how we practice in our attitude, and I want to first just speak a little bit about that. And I love a teaching from Pema Chodron, who's a Tibetan uh, nun and teacher. And she compares... <coughs> pardon me. I'm sorry about the little bit of coughing. It's a tail end of a, of a cold. I'm not contagious. But Pema Chodron speaks about training a dog. And, um, you know, there's a, there's a number of different ways you can train a dog. And one way can be in a fairly rigid and tight, kind of a demanding way. And eventually in time, the dog will learn to come, stay, sit. But sometimes when dogs are trained with a lot of fear inside the training, they become kind of neurotic and confused. And she says, and by contrast, you could also train a dog with kindness, and it in time will learn to stay, to come, to sit. But instead of being neurotic and confused, often those dogs become more confident and flexible. And so I love that as a powerful teaching metaphor of how are we approaching our practice? Is it one of judging this and judging that? Being hard on ourselves? So I really want to invite uh, the, the spirit, the infusion of kindfulness as we attend to uh, being mindful of our body, mind, and heart. Heart meaning emotions. Bob Sharples, he's a meditation teacher, lives in Australia. He says this. He says, don't meditate to fix yourself or to heal yourself or to improve yourself or to redeem yourself. Rather, do it as an act of love, of a deep, warm friendship to yourself. And in this way, there's no longer any need for the subtle aggression of self-improvement. For the endless guilt of not doing enough, It offers the possibility of an end to the ceaseless rounds of trying so hard that wraps our lives in a knot. How about meditation as an act of love? Very beautiful. I think we know about the aggression of self-improvement and that feeling of our lives being wrapped around in a knot. And it's not easy sitting alone and Hafiz has a teaching poem called For Three Days where he says, not many teachers in this world can give you as much enlightenment in one year as sitting all alone for three, five, six days in your closet. That would do it. And that means not leaving. Uh Uh-uh. You better get yourself to get a friend to bring you a few sandwiches and you better get yourself a chamber pot. No reading. Uh Uh-uh. No writing. 
that would be cheating. Let's aim for the high 360-degree detox, though the sitting alone is not recommended if you're normally sedated. But dear one, don't let Hafiz fool you. Dear one, don't let Hafiz fool you. There's a ruby buried inside here. There is a ruby buried inside here. That ruby he's speaking about is wisdom, insight, understanding. This is one of the beautiful qualities of the mindfulness, this heartfulness practice, to begin to see more clearly into the places that we're not seeing clearly, to the places that we're holding on to, places we're pushing away. That ruby is developing our wisdom, our understanding, and we're embarking upon this journey, all of us here and now. So the name of this uh, retreat is um, Finding Freedom in the Body. Mindfulness is a gateway to liberation. And so this is exactly what uh, we're referring to, that uh, liberation is to begin to understand these places inside us, these stories, these narratives, these places perhaps that uh, are limited definitions or enslave us. And so we're embarking on this marvelous journey of the body. And tomorrow we'll um, embark upon this with the 32 parts of the body meditation. So I'd like to just offer, um, hopefully this will be some inspiration for, for us on what brings us to this practice. And I trust, you know, everyone, last night a few of you shared what was bringing you here. And I know that uh, for many of us that come to meditate, we're wanting to understand more deeply our own hearts, to make peace. And I always love to, um, perhaps on these first nights of retreat, to speak a little bit about the story of the Buddha. I find it myself to be so inspiring, and it's actually, um, you know, his story is, is kind of like my own story in the sense of uh, what brought me to practice. And so it's said that um, Siddhartha Gautama, who later became the Buddha, was born into a noble family. He was a prince, and he was destined to become a great king. <coughs> and he lived a very sheltered life for some astrologers or wise people had, when they saw when he was an infant, and they look at the signs of the infant and give predictions, four out of the five said he'd become a great king, but... The youngest one, his name was Kodanya, said, no, he's going to become a Buddha. And for some reason, the king got scared about that possibility because he wanted him to be a king like himself and rule the land and so forth. And so the king purposefully sheltered Siddhartha's life with pleasure palaces for each of the seasons and... um, so forth, and lived a very sheltered and a life of a lot of um, fulfillment and pleasure and so forth. 
And in his 29th year of life, for some unknown reasons, he decided to step out into the kingdom with, um, it's known as his charioteersman, Chana. And um, going on these a few outings, he came across what's known as the four heavenly messengers. First messenger is the messenger that there is aging. And the first time that Siddhartha came across an old person, uh, he asked China, who's this person? And well, this is a person, if you live long, you, you age. And, and Siddhartha said, well, will this happen to me? He goes, yes, it'll happen to you and it'll happen to everyone. There's no escape from aging. This was kind of a shock. Second outing, he came across someone deathly ill and asked about this person. Yeah, Siddhartha said, you know, at times um, we as human beings, we are susceptible to illness. There's no escape from illness. The third, of course, is he comes across a dead body, someone that's dead, and he sees there's no life in this body, there's no breath and touching, and it's cold. Siddhartha questioned about this, and... Chana said, this is a person that has died, that no one can escape from death. This was uh, very, very upsetting to Siddhartha, and he began to realize with all this pleasure and palaces, if it's, if it's not all going to last, what is this life? He was very distraught. And then he came across the fourth heavenly messenger, which was... Uh, like a holy person, a wanderer, a person that was dedicating their life to truth. And when Siddhartha saw this person, he asked, Chana, this person has a different feeling than any other person I've ever met before in my life. Who is this person? And Chana again explained, this is an ascetic. This is a person dedicating their life for understanding the meaning of life. And there was a glimpse of profound hope within Siddhartha's heart that maybe there was a way. You know, the story goes that he left the kingdom, left the palace, left his noble kingly inheritance, and um, we're still talking about what he discovered nearly 2,600 years ago, and we'll maybe share more and more about what was discovered. But I, I love, this is such a human story, I myself had a realization when I was four years old that um, I was going to die and that death could come at any moment. I was riding in the back seat of my mom and dad's car. We were driving down Quarry Hill Road in Brookline, Massachusetts. I don't know what they were talking about, but I just knew that I was going to die. They were going to die. Everybody was going to die and it could happen at any moment. And so I shared with my mommy and daddy what I had just discovered and realized. And I remember them just responding back to me very lovingly and very kindly, don't worry, Bobby. I was called Bobby in those days. Don't worry, Bobby. It's not going to happen for a long, 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 long time. And even if for, like, I could tell that that was, a, you know, they were trying to be comforting and nice, but what I knew was what I knew, and I knew they weren't telling me the truth because I knew that it could happen at any time. I don't have any resentment against them, but I, 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 I knew what I knew. And unfortunately, um, 
by the time I was nine years old, that's just a few years you know, from four to nine, not many years, I experienced a lot of death in my life. A brother, a younger brother, who I shared the same bedroom with, he died of an illness. My best friend, who I played with every single day after school, one night died from, went into a diabetic coma. And then my grandfather, who lived downstairs, he was, um, I was very close to my grandpa, and he died of a heart attack. And that left me very confused and lost for many years. It was also during the time of the 60s. I saw the Beatles grow their hair long. Dylan was singing, the times are a-changing. And it was really, to me, a very confusing time. I was really lost. School didn't really make much sense. You know, I look back at it now, I was living with a lot of grief, a lot of confusion. And so I managed to barely graduate high school. And um, I had a very high draft number the, with the Vietnam War, and it actually ended a few months after I graduated high school. And some friends went to work. A number of them went to college. And I didn't really quite know what to do. I was working in a, in a chicken restaurant. <laughs> and... Um, Maybe there's something else. And one of my friends said, well, he had to repeat a year of high school to try to get into a, like a state college. And I thought, all right, well, maybe I'll, I'll do that. And so I did that. And then I applied for college, and I was fortunate enough to get into a very small state college in the northeast kingdom of Vermont, where I majored in skiing, drinking beer, smoking marijuana, and trying to have girlfriends. After a year and a half, I flunked out <laughs> and was readmitted back on warning, and my mother begged me, Bobby, isn't there something that would interest you? And so I looked in the course catalog, and, the, and I know I didn't want to take any more of any more reading, writing, arithmetic, math, history, science. I wanted something different. And um, something perked my interest, and it was weird, because I, I was unfamiliar with this except for one thing. It, it said the wisdom of the East. Then there was a colon, there was a bunch of words after that, but I didn't even know how to pronounce it till much later. It was Hinduism, Buddhism, Taoism, and Zen. But there was something about the East that caught my attention. And... Um, The connotation was uh, growing up in a Jewish family outside of Boston, we, we would, my family really liked Chinese food and so I would go to a lot of Chinese restaurants and I loved Chinese food. I still do to this day. And, um, and there's something about like the East reminded me of, of my experiences in the restaurant when I was a child and 
I always had this connection with the East. I felt it in my heart. I, I loved the pictures of the Buddhas and the dragons. The food tasted good. The smells were good. And even, you know, I'm not wanting to stereotype, but there was a different type of vibe in a Chinese restaurant than like Denny's or Howard Johnson's. And I don't mean in any type of, I mean, it is a stereotype thing, but that was my experience. And, but there was something about the East that drew me Though I didn't know what it was. Well, I guess it was first my gut, <laughs> my belly. It's, and um, so I went to this class. I didn't know what to expect. <coughs> and I walked in and I saw the strangest looking thing I'd ever seen in my life. My college professor was sitting on top of his desk in a full lotus position. I had never had a professor like this ever before in my entire life. I think I signed up for Hogwarts here. And um, I like, what, what's, he's sitting on top of his desk. He's got his, like a pretzel. And um, I couldn't believe it. And yet when he opened his mouth and when he talked, he was so embodied, he was so sincere, he was so mysterious. He was wise. And I, I started just really getting into this class. And he assigned to us to read the Tao Te Ching by Lao Tzu, the way of life, the way of the Tao. And I couldn't believe it when I started reading the Tao Te Ching. It was like coming home. I never was exposed to this type of teachings about life. And it made such deep inner resonance and sense with me. And my teacher, Bill Jackson, the way that he just, I never met him, he was like my fourth, he's like my first fourth heavenly messenger. He was showing me that there was a way. And I knew, though I didn't know what he knew, but I knew that he knew something. And I knew that I wanted to know what he knew. Because he knew something. Something important. And so, as I said, he assigned to us the Tao Te Ching, and um, it's 81 different epigrams of poems, and some of them I would just read over and over again, and one in particular was epigram number 47, and to just make a short um, little adaptation summary of it, essentially it says, there's no need to look outside your window for everything you need to know is inside you. There's no need to look outside your window for everything you need to know is inside you. And I kept on reading this over and over again and it began to dawn on me that if I wanted to know something, I needed to look inside. And it's funny to say, all those years, I never knew that. I didn't have any clue about that. I mean, that's in some sense just like how lost I was and didn't even know how lost I was. But like Latsu was saying, if you want to know something, look in here. That was like radical to me. That was really the beginning of my meditation journey, which now, because I'm 63, is over 40 years ago. No need to look outside your window for everything we need to know is inside you. And I trust that every one of us here has met these four heavenly messengers. I do not think we could be in this retreat if we haven't come across them one way or another. Whether it's 
recognizing our own aging or that of others that we care about or our own illness or those that we have cared or known that have been sick, those that we know that have died. And somehow you heard about meditation. Somehow you heard about mindfulness. Maybe the Buddha, maybe um, a teacher, or maybe you read something. But somehow there was like this fourth heavenly messenger pointed and said, take a look in here. Take a look in here. I believe every one of us here has been touched by these messengers. And I actually would love to invite you maybe after this talk tonight to, as you walk, to reflect upon like these messengers and how they've touched you. Sometimes we've had a number, I've had many fourth heavenly messengers, some I've met, some I've never met, but just how they lived their life inspired me to want to, again, to look inside. And the Buddha discovered that maybe there's a way So from um, that small school in the Northeast Kingdom of Vermont, Linden State College, ended up traveling to San Francisco. And eventually I went to a school in San Francisco, an alternative graduate school called the California Institute of Asian Studies, which later became the California Institute of Integral Studies. And while I was there, I met... Um, my very first formal Vipassana insight meditation teacher, Dr. Rina Sarkar, who's originally from Burma. She's a scholar, Buddhist scholar, and um, took a retreat with her, and it was all over after that. <laughs> like, um, caused beautiful uh, brain transformation, never been the same ever since. And um, I, I, this, this practice became my life, and still is my life. And so I really, um, you know, studied uh, a lot with Rina and Buddhist theory and practice. And <coughs> there came a time when um, she invited me and some of her other students to go to Burma and to meet her teacher, who was a Burmese forest monk, Tungpu Luciado. And so on uh, November 9th, 1980, I flew to Burma. And I ordained temporarily as a, as a Buddhist forest monk and met Tampulu Sero and began practicing with him and with others. And one of the very first practices that he offered to us, it actually was happening when we were ordaining. When, you, when a person is getting ordained and they start shaving the head, they chant the 32 parts of the body practice as a practice. This happens to both nuns and monks. And um, what I didn't know about Tampulucero was that he was really into the 32 parts of the body meditation. He was really into the elements practice, really into these meditations on the mindfulness of death. And after now sharing with you a little bit of my personal history, um, I felt like I was in the right place. Like, you know, a lot of places, no one would even want to talk about death, and these monks and nuns, that's all they did was talk about death, like, this is my place. And um, going to cemeteries and meditating on the fragility and the preciousness of this life. So I'm not trying to say all this to be morbid, but just to, like, you know, like, what is this life? I want to be curious about it, investigate it. And so 
Tsongkhul Lucero, he taught um, extensively these practices of, uh, of the body, and I got, you know, really into it. It's a beautiful quote from Saraha that says that within my body are all the sacred places of the world. And the most profound pilgrimage I can ever make is within my own body. The most profound pilgrimage I can make is within my own body. And Martha Elliot, she writes that your history is here inside your body and your body is your storehouse of all of your learnings and thoughts and experiences. Our history is here inside our body. So again, in the West, most insight meditation Vipassana practitioners often practice these first three practices in the foundations of the body, of mindfulness, of the breath, the postures, and mindfulness in day-to-day activities. And they're hardly exposed to the 32 parts of the body meditation, the elements in these practices on the mindfulness of death. Tampulu Seto, this is what he has to say about the 32 parts of the body. He says, this is the most eminent among all of the satipatthanas, the foundations of mindfulness. This meditation is unlike any other kind of meditation. And it is brought to light and taught only in the times when the Buddhas arise. So I began practicing this meditation beginning in 1980. And eventually, long story, I, um, we brought Temple Lucero back to the United States. We founded a monastery in the Santa Cruz area in Boulder Creek called Tungpulukabaye Monastery. I lived there as a householder and as a lay person, not as a monk. I disrobed, but I helped take care of the monks and practiced and studied the Dharma very extensively for eight and a half years. And then eventually I advanced into another training of getting married and having two children. Very humbling and wonderful. And, uh, and then um, after the monastery, I got this job at a stroke center working with people with strokes, Parkinson's, MS, other neurological or orthopedic conditions. I was hired as a counselor. And I also began to teach meditation there. And I'd hear anecdotal things. I remember this old woman once saying, this mindfulness is keeping me out of the nursing home. And I said, what do you mean? She goes, look at me, I'm an old lady. I've got to get up in the middle of the night and I've got to pee. And I've got to walk to the toilet. And so I'm mindful of lifting, moving, and placing. And because I'm mindful of walking, I'm not going to slip and fall and break my hip and end up in a nursing home. So I'd hear things like that to you know, more other things of beginning to reconnect with the left arm or leg that's no longer working and developing a relationship with it. Beginning to realize that who they are is more than what they do. And I was sharing this with an ex-monk friend of mine and 
he said, well, a book was just published called Full Catastrophe Living. I'm going to send it to you by John Kabat-Zinn. So he sent it to me, and I read this book, and I couldn't believe what uh, John Kabat-Zinn was doing at University of Massachusetts Medical Center. Started what's called Mindfulness-Based Stress Reduction. And so I actually uh, wrote him a letter to thank him for the book, and this was before he was famous in 1990. He called me back and thanked me for writing him and um, invited me to come to UMass Medical Center and to check out what's going on there. And I did, actually, a couple months later, because I have family in Boston. And, and after seeing what they were doing, it's like, oh, I, I want to do this. And John essentially said, knowing my history, spending you know, a number of years in the monastery, I said, well, just go out there and do it. We don't have any trainings yet. And all the curriculum's in the book, Full Catastrophe Living. Just go teach. And if you have any problems, give us a call. We'll talk then. <laughs> now there's trainings and so forth. Those are those early days. And so part of the primary practice of mindfulness-based stress reduction is a body scan. Many of you might be familiar with that, beginning with the left foot, working way up to the top of the body. John Kabat-Zinn body scan was inspired from the Uba Kin tradition, with uh, is probably most known in, in the West, but he actually studied with a chemist named Robert Hover. And often in that tradition, the body scans were down on the top of the head, sweeping down to the feet. But John felt, anatomically speaking, let's start at the furthest place away from the head. So we started with the left foot. So I began teaching as an MBSR teacher, teaching the body scan, and the, the 32 parts of the body just kept on creeping in. My wife tells me, yeah, at night when I'm... When I'm in a little rocking chair with my son, I'd be chanting to him, head, hair, body, hair, nails, cheese, skin. <laughs> so I just kept it going. And, but you know, I was teaching the body scan and so forth. And so I've lived long enough that I can say this, that after 26 years of still being connected to the 32 parts, but not fully, because I'm doing other, you know, body scan and MBSR, I had this like profound realization one day that this is an incredible practice and it needs to be, it, it was kind of like going extinct. And I, I want to be able to share this and practice this with others. <coughs> it's kind of akin to, I wish, I, I'll have to get this like on a PowerPoint and have it behind uh, me here. But this is a picture of uh, a Far Side cartoon by Gary Larson. Those of you familiar with The Far Side. <coughs> so in, this picture, in this picture, there's three cows in a pasture, and they're eating grass. They're eating grass. This is what they do every day in their lives. They eat grass. But one cow all of a sudden has an epiphany and says out to the other cows, hey, wait a minute, we're eating grass. We're eating grass. We're eating grass. Well, in the same way, it's like after 26 years with the, with the body, like, hey, wait a minute, we got a body. We got a body. We got a body. Yeah, we got a body. And so I realized just how profound this practice is of the 32 parts of the body, and I began to um, practice it more and begin to share what I know. And 
So I'd like to maybe um, share with you what, what are these parts, because um, you might be intrigued. I've been talking about this for a couple of days now. <coughs> and so obviously, um, you know there's more than 30 parts. And so, um, but here, here's the list. There's 20 solid parts and 12 liquid. So the first five are head hair, body hair, nails, teeth, and skin. Next group, flesh, sinews, bones, bone marrow, kidneys. And then heart, liver, diaphragm, spleen, lungs. Large intestine, small intestine, stomach, feces, brain. Bioflem, pus, blood, sweat, fat. Tears, grease, saliva, mucus, oil of the joints, and urine. That's quite a list. Very interesting. Why is the feces next to the brain? Did the Buddha have a sense of humor? Or perhaps, you know, now we, we talk about the second brain is located in the digestive system. So it's very interesting, these parts. And when I look in the canonical literature, why these parts... I have found not, not even any commentaries on why these parts or why this particular order. So I can't explain to you why these parts and why this order. But one thing that I can say through the practice, and it's actually quite obvious that the first five parts, head, hair, body, hair, nails, teeth, and skin, that when I look at you, I see your clothes, yeah, but like, what do I see? I see head hair, body hair, nails, teeth, and skin. These are the parts that we see when we look at, at one another. And make no mistake, the cosmetic industry knows about this. And they're fussing. And um, it's a multi-billion dollar, billion dollar industry. And so um, this practice is beginning to investigate these surface parts to explore what they really are. Now, I also want to just say, before getting into this first five grouping, that <coughs> obviously these 32 parts do not cover the whole body. And from my own experience in doing this practice for many years, I really consider these parts to be like ambassadors or doorways or gateways into all of the other parts of the body. So that's how we begin to include all of the different parts. Like, for example, my wife has diabetes, and so when we're in the abdominal area, just the nature of her practice in there led her into the pancreas. And, and so we're not excluding, actually the, each of these parts is a doorway into so many different parts of the body. But coming back to head hair, body hair, nails, teeth, and skin, as I was mentioning, this is um, you know, a multi-billion dollar industry. And actually, um, let me see here. Yeah. One... In one of the very first classes I taught in Santa Cruz, with the 32 parts of the body, there was a, a retired chief financial officer of some corporation that was taking my class. 
And so she began to think about head hair, body hair, nails, teeth, and skin. And so she drew up an Excel sheet tabulating approximately how much money she has actually spent on head hair, body hair, nails, teeth, and skin for about 50 years or more. And so, you know, like, like head hair, like she's, that's for shampoo, conditioners, curling items, irons, hair dryers, hair ties, haircuts, salon treatments, body hair, razors, shaving cream, eyebrow wax, nails, nail polish, nail files, nail utensils, pedicures, manicures, nail oil, toothpaste, dental floss, toothbrushes, electronic toothbrushes, whiteners, cleanings, fillings, crowns, skin, lotion, moisture, cleanser, makeup, Facials, laser work, skin cancer, freezing, skin cancer surgeries. So she, she approximated it's like about a couple hundred thousand dollars she spent on that. It's actually probably a lot more these days. But it's really interesting, like this detailed Excel sheet on all this. And it's actually funny about parts of the body, too. I bet you never knew that um, in the last 10 years, they actually, scientists have actually discovered two new body parts. No, you don't have a third arm or a second head. But it's just, just like the ocean is not fully explored or the forests are not fully explored, the body is still a mystery. And so like in the last 10 years, they discovered, scientists discovered a, a new layer within the human cornea in the eye. It's 15 microns thick. I think that means really small. It's called a duus layer. And um, then there's a ligament discovered in the knee, an and- anterolateral ligament. So the list goes on. I mean, even this body is still kind of uncharted. So coming back to the head here, body here, and nails, teeth, and skin. Again, um, we've spent a lot of time, at least I know that I've spent a lot of time fussing on these things. And when we really look, let's say if we got a medical dictionary, for example, with head hair, what it will say is head hair is composed of thin, flexible shafts of hardened cells protruding from the head. Its purpose is to keep our head warm, if you have hair, and also protection from uh, ultraviolet light. That's what head hair is. And yet, you know, we all have our head hair stories. I was sharing with my colleagues yesterday. I got bar mitzvahed when I was 13. And um, that night was the party. I was the star of the party. And so I um, went into the bathroom because I wanted to look good. And I don't know if you remember, if any of you, I don't even know if they still have Brill Cream. And there's a little song about it, a little dab will do you. Well, I thought, rather than doing a little dab, I'll squeeze the whole tube on my hair. And you could cook French fries in my hair after that. It was so oily, and I was getting towels, and I'm trying to wipe it off, and I'm feeling so much shame and humiliation, and I'm the star of the party, and I have to go out there. And um, this all happened one day while I'm meditating on the head here, and there I was, 13 years old. Here's shame. It's like how powerful these parts can be at times. 
Another friend of mine was doing the practice and she was with her head here and Nelson recalled stroking her dying grandmother's hair. Our history is here inside our body. And so these parts are very provocative in that they may bring up at times our life. We all have stories of head hair and body hair, nails, teeth, and skin. And what this practice begins to do is it breaks some of the spell of enchantment. I mean, it's nice to have clean hair and to make it look nice, but if, if somehow we begin to identify that this hair look is what brings me worth and happiness, it's, it's um, will it? Sometimes my wife and I, we used to remind ourselves when we get done, like, have, has anyone ever come back from a haircut going, I hate it? Anybody know that? Okay, so well, the few people admitted it. And um, so sometimes we'll, we'll remind each other, oh, thin, flexible shafts of hardened cells protruding from the head. <laughs> That's what it is. And yet we've created worlds and worlds and worlds out of head hair, body hair, nails, teeth, and skin. And so this practice has a way of helping to break through some of this enchantment. And to, like, what is it? It's thin, flexible shafts of hardened cells. I'm fussing over thin, flexible shafts of hardened cells. Like, oh, that's what it really is. There's a particular way that we'll be practicing it, and it's from the Dharma, it's called the sevenfold skill in learning. And this is where it becomes a little bit of a different practice than what a number of us are used to. It's kind of a prescription of how we practice with the body parts. We must know it verbally and know it mentally. And know the color of the particular part, the shape, the location, the direction, meaning is it above or below the waist, or maybe both above and below the waist. And then the delimitation of what it's bordered by, as well as its definition. What, what is it? Head, hair, thin, flexible shafts of hardened cells and its function. And so we'll be working with the practice in this way and we'll actually, uh, tomorrow morning for the first instruction sit, We'll begin to chant these parts verbally, head hair, body hair, nails, teeth, and skin, and then we'll repeat it mentally within us, silently, head hair, body hair, nails, teeth, and skin. And then there'll just be a little bit of instruction at the beginning just to help us to find our way to it, the color, the shape, the location, the direction, and so forth, the boundary. And also beginning to understand more if it's, if it's true definition, what it really is. And um, its function. And, and we're offering this in a very matter-of-fact way. We're not putting on that it's gross or that it's wonderful. We just want to state it as it is. And, and whatever your experience is will inform whatever your experience is about the body. Some ways you can say this practice is incredibly personal. And it's incredibly impersonal. This is uh, two aspects of this practice. So we begin to see, you know, like this head here, like, you know, I didn't send an email saying, head here, go out. The, it, the body just does what it does. It, it, it's, it has its own mystery. And as an aging guy, it's not like I sent a, a text to my prostate to get a little bit enlarged. It just does it. 
with, and, and I don't like it, but what to do? I don't have any control over it. This is one of the teachings of non-self. If there was a self, I could say, prostate, stay where you are, head here, come back. So it's incredibly personal and impersonal. It's kind of a juxtaposition. Because we live in this thing, and yet we don't have any control over it. So we're going to investigate this body. You know, and the question is, whose body really is this anyways? You know, the, a lot of the current science is saying that we're not a human being, we're a human biome. There's many organisms, we're about 10% human and 90% organisms. So I'd like to share with you um, what's said in the canonical literature about some of um, the benefits of this practice. <clears throat> so probably the most profound of benefit, one of, is the gradual eradication of the view of self, as I was just mentioning. It's the self to be found in the head here, the body here. So it's revealing this ownerless, impersonal nature of things. And it also can be used as a healing meditation. I had a dear friend of mine, Barbara, who had cancer. And she was given um, a six-month prognosis to live. <clears throat> she came to the monastery and the monks began teaching her the 32 parts of the body and she got a little better. Kind of amazing. And um, at the end of uh, one year, she sent a postcard to her oncologist. Um, four words. Still here. Love, Barbara. <laughs> That went on for about seven years. And she swore that, that this practice uh, had a profound effect on her. She eventually did pass away of a, a reoccurrence, but um, felt that um, her life was incredibly prolonged. Actually, this is what Barbara wrote. She wrote this... Not so, not you know, before she died, but not so long before it. She calls it of life and death. She says, It's not the will to live which sustains my life, but the release from fear. I've not outwitted death, but I've broken free from the stranglehold of fear. At Christmas, we celebrate the wonders of birth, and at Easter, the miracle of rebirth. What then of death? What then of death? Without fear, death unfolds like a warm cloak of soft black wool. Death is the abyss from which all life emerges, drawn by the light. Barbara Roberts. Blessings to Barbara. This is from another person who wrote to me. She said, I've been disembodied for most of my life, the result of very early and sustained child abuse by multiple abusers. The teachings and the exercises on the body have allowed me to claim my body as my own, organ to muscle, to veins, to fluids and skin. 
I have removed the hands of unwanted perpetrators from my body and from my mind, and my heart has deep compassion for this body of mine. I have a new respect for what my body is and has always been. I'll be taking this practice with me for the rest of my life. She also said, I might add that as I began to understand the intricate relationship and purpose of all of my bodily systems, I began to regret damage to my body by my own choices over decades of my life. Too much sun leads to melanoma, too little exercise led to weakened muscles, reduced core strength and limited breath, too much alcohol led to blackouts and poor sexual decisions, extreme measures to lose weight contributed to a yo-yo cycle of losing and regaining and losing weight again. I neglected and abused my body. The awareness of food as fuel and nutrition as energy had escaped me. Rather, sugar was consumed as a comfort to my anxiety, my loneliness, my fear, my guilt, my difficulties with intimacy. I now forgive my injuries to my body and work to respect this powerful system, my boat. I inhabit my boat as it carries me through the remaining days of my life. My boat is pointed in the direction of the shore of my understanding. I tend to it with gratitude, wisdom, and increasing love. There's a lot of stories that I could read here. I'm also aware of the time. So, yes, I mentioned um, the benefit of a healing meditation. It also speaks of um, the benefits that you become a conqueror of boredom and delight. You become a conqueror of fear and dread. You can bear the cold and the heat. It uproots pride and clinging. It amasses deep concentration. You will become intelligent. Attains jhana, absorption. Attains nibbana, the complete freedom. And so tomorrow we'll um, begin this practice within this fathom-long body with the thoughts and emotions that lies our world. Its origin, its cessation, its pathway to freedom is found within this fathom long body. So let's just sit for another minute or two and thank you for listening. So I'll just end with um, a reading from Tsongkhapa. It says, The human body, at peace with itself, is more precious than the rarest of gems. 
Cherish your body. It is yours this one time only. The human form is one with difficulty and it is easy to lose. All worldly things are brief like lightning in the sky. This life you must know as the tiny splash of a raindrop. A thing of beauty that disappears even as it comes into being. The human body at peace with itself is more precious than the rarest of gems. Thank you for your attention. And, and so we'll go for a walk for a little bit and then come back for the last sit. And again, I'd love to invite you, if that feels um, worthy of your own exploration, to these heavenly messengers, how they've informed you, how they've touched you, perhaps how they've brought you to this retreat into your life aging, illness, death, and the seed of awakening, the possibility we come to know our own hearts. So thank you so much. I'm going to be here for a while, so please sit.